Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter. Joined as always by the Milky Way to my Snickers, Brandon. <laughs> Two of my favorite candy bars. I love it. <laughs> yeah, you- but you gotta admit that Milky Way is kind of the sidekick. To oh, the absolutely. Snickers. You lose the peanuts and you lose a lot of flavor. It's basically the same yeah. without the peanuts. <laughs> I always thought the Milky Way was, yeah, it's kind of a sidekick uh, bar. And we're saying this because, of course, it's the day after Halloween. And uh, we have a few pieces of of candy sitting on our counter. We did the old, uh, we put the candy out on the street in a bowl, which I guess is the COVID way to do it. Did, oh, did you sure. do that or did you actually answer the door? Uh, did neither. Uh, nobody... Nobody ever comes trick or treating oh where I live. Nobody. So, right? <laughs> yeah, that, I've that been be- I've been to your house. There's there's got to be some kids around there, but you're on a pretty busy street I, too. I, I yeah, guess. Yeah, I think it's because I'm on like a busy street. But this is my third Halloween here, and uh, I have not seen one. The first two years were like, all right, let's get a bowl of candy ready. <laughs> we'll turn on the lights. We'll make it welcoming, <laughs> and not a single person came. So this year, like, all right, well, we're just going to be those people and turn off the porch light. <laughs> <laughs> And not answer the door. I mean, you know, yeah. it's in ring. <laughs> well, I actually wasn't around for Halloween. I was driving home from South Dakota. My first, first of four South Dakota pheasant trips uh, w- took place this weekend. And here's the thing about pheasant hunting, Brandon. Uh, man, for me, I run hot and cold. So I, the first day out there, on Thursday, I shot lights out. And we're group hunting. So, you know, you don't really count the birds you shoot personally. You count the group number of birds. And we didn't, you know, we didn't shoot a limit. We had eight guys. So that that would be, you know, 24 birds. I think we maybe shot 20 the first day. Oh, wow. But I shot a good number of those. I mean, I was just, I was in the right place at the right time. My dog was working great. Um, and I was shooting great. That was Thursday. Yesterday, Sunday, I had two absolute layups that I missed. Oh no. I mean, I hit both the birds. I hit both the birds. One of them flew across uh, a cornfield and landed in a food plot and we, my dog and I ran across and I thought, oh, for sure, this bird, this crippled bird, like Crosby will find him. No, man, we looked and looked and looked. Couldn't, he didn't even get any scent off that bird. And then another, we were at another place and I shot a bird. I thought I hit it hard. Brandon, this pheasant literally bounced when it hit the ground. <laughs> I thought that is a dead pheasant. And Crosby went running out into this pasture to pick it up, and that pheasant got up and flew away. Wow. <laughs> How like, does that even happen? I mean, you can hit it. Sometimes the shock of the pellets knocks the bird down, but it doesn't, it's not a kill shot, so the bird can get up and fly away. Oh my gosh, so frustrating. And then I'm like, am I using the wrong size shot? Maybe I should have been. And I had switched, I was shooting fives i switched to sixes because there was no wind and there were birds were at closer range early season i thought oh maybe i used using the wrong shot it was super frustrating but that's hunting man i just had to console myself with the fact that on thursday i shot lights out and everybody else was like why are you getting all the birds you know and then yesterday everybody else was getting birds and i wasn't so that's pheasant hunting and uh that's it's like life's way you know? of evening things out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was kind of thinking as I was walking, like pheasant hunting in some ways is like, especially easy shots. E- there, there's easy shots in pheasant hunting. That just happens. But they're kind of like free throws. And you would think some guy who's getting paid $40 million a year to play in the NBA, like the least you could do is, is sink every free throw. But of course, nobody shoots 100% right. free throws. That doesn't happen. So even free throws, people miss. Even layups, people miss. You know, guys miss. And that's how it is, I think, with pheasant hunting. I'm sure golfers feel the same kind of thing. Like, it shouldn't be that hard to hit a 10-foot putt or whatever. But you can't. You don't hit them every time. So that was pheasant hunting, man. And um, 
The weekend before that was early deer season, and my son and I each shot a deer. He shot a nice seven-point buck. I shot a doe. I could only shoot antlerless uh, in the early season. We um, butchered up those deer, and I made a ton of brats and snack sticks and you know steaks and roasts and it's all in the freezer and we're awaiting our cwd results before we take our first bite of any of those how long how long do those results typically take to get in yeah you know longer i guess in the early season hunt because uh it showed on the dnr website that they had collected our deer heads a week ago on Monday, uh, you know, I'm sure they, they don't work on the weekends. And then a week ago, they picked them up. And now it's been a week, and we still don't have results. It just shows pending on our on our deer head. So there, maybe today or tomorrow, I would hope. I think then next weekend when actual legit firearms, regular firearm season opens, they're going to actually have people collecting uh, at these different stations, we go to one just north of Crosby, Minnesota, um, and I think they'll be collecting the glands. I think they take the lymph glands out and they take a tooth because if the deer tests positive, then they also want to see how old the deer was, and they tell that by the tooth. So then I think they go faster. You know, when they're when they're our live personnel taking the deer, taking out the glands, and and labeling them and dropping them in the little Ziploc bags and they get them to the lab pretty quickly. You know, the, the university of Minnesota is working on like a, a, a quick, a rapid test, a rapid CWD test. That would just be a game changer well, rather than do you do all this work of butchering. It would and be then like, what cool. if my dear, yeah, go ahead. It'd be kind of cool if we were at the point where, you know, like it's it's just like any other tests that we're, we're, we're coming across where we can take COVID tests at home. We can go buy them at Walgreens. It'd be cool if right. we were at the point where you could take your kit with you and, yeah, get it done instantly. So, you, like you were saying, don't have to waste your time at butchering and going through all this work. To Not only don't have to waste your time, Brandon, but like think if my deer tested positive for CWD, like everything is contaminated. You know, every knife I own, every the the back of my truck, my kitchen counter at my house, the garage at the cabin, like everything that deer touched is potentially contaminated with CWD. And then what am I going to do? Like bleach out the back of my truck? And we've been eating in our kitchen, you know. Since, yeah. Since we butchered that deer in here. Like there's, it, it, I, I don't think there's CWD. There's only, you know, there's been one positive case in our, in our zone. Okay. Um, so I, I think it's, it's just highly, highly unlikely, but nevertheless, it's that thought of like, well, what do you do? You know, there was a story of a couple years ago down in Southeastern Minnesota where these guys, um, butchered all their deer and, you know, they're at a deer camp and one out of their seven deer tested positive for CWD, but they had butchered all their deer together. And so they had to throw out because they, you know, you just can't. Right. Everything's touching everything else. It's a very messy process, butchering, especially when you're doing it outside on the back of your pickup truck or whatever, like I do. And then, um, you know, you throw everything in the grind pile and you grind it all up together and you separate it into hamburger and this and that. Well, and they threw out seven deer, man. They had to, wow. they had to throw out all that meat. So sad. And that's a shame. Anyways, yeah, fingers crossed. I really, really doubt it, but I do very much look forward to the day when uh, when there's a rapid CWD test. And then one more thing, I'm, I'm part of a study with the U of M. A, a woman at the U of M is doing her PhD, on, and part of her research is what animals eat gut piles. So when you when you kill a deer in the wild, you field dress it, which means you gut it. The first thing you do is you cut open its, um, you know, uh, from the, what do they say? From the genitals to the, I don't know, neck or whatever. There's some funny way they say it. And you pull the guts out because the first, you, you want to cool that deer off as quickly as possible um, for, the, for the sake of the flavor of the meat and, and for 
parasites and things like that. And so you field dress the deer and you pull the guts out and you leave the guts in a gut pile in the middle of the woods. Well, I set up a trail camera over the gut pile, which will take pictures of all the animals that come. And I mean, I'm telling you, man, within 48 hours, those gut piles are gone. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Like, so it's like, what? Crazy. What? Yeah, what's eating those gut piles? Like eagles, bald eagles, turkey vultures, raccoons, you know. Um, it'll be it'll be fun to see coyotes. I mean, we'll, we'll see, we'll see. So I'll I'll report back on that too because I'll be going up this weekend and pull that camera and uh, uh, upload all those photos. So yeah, that should I'm be pretty curious. fun. Yeah. yeah, I'm very curious to see that. That should be really cool. Uh, I, it's it's so interesting. Like just a few fo- photos that I've seen you post on Instagram of your trail cam. You've gotten some pretty cool stuff on there. So oh, yeah. to see him go towards his yeah. gut pile will be really cool. Yeah, exactly. Well, Brandon. We finally have a date. You're going to go out pheasant hunting with some expert pheasant hunters. And that doesn't mean me. That means the co-host of the Flush <laughs> TV show and podcast, man. No pressure. Yeah, no pressure at all. This, uh, it, yeah, this will be, be a blast. I'm really, really looking forward to it. It's a. Uh, it's you might it's also, end up being a. You might end up being a future guest on the Flush Podcast as uh, a result. Geez. Nobody wants to see me on the TV <laughs> screen. That's for sure. <laughs> okay, just the podcast. Just the podcast. There we go. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, that should be fun. Well, it's funny. The the my guest today, um, uh, uh, somebody from the internet, uh, um, an old acquaintance, sent me. Uh, a link to this woman's work and said, you should have her on your podcast. Uh, she started a thing called Church of the Wild, where it's a network of churches that meet outdoors. Um, and I reached out to her and she said, Tony, we went to seminary together. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't really remember. And, you know, this is married name versus maiden name, et cetera, et cetera. And once I, once I saw Victoria Lures on, on the video screen when we did the interview, I'm like, oh, now I remember you, of course. Um, we had such a great conversation. She, uh, like me, you know, followed kind of the traditional path of go to seminary and then start doing ministry. She was even more traditional than I in that she got ordained as a Presbyterian minister and worked in Presbyterian churches. But um, first, because of her son, as a young man, like 12 or 13, got super engaged in environmental activism. That kind of shifted her focus. Um, And then from that activism, well, she talks about this in our conversation. She moved more toward rethinking how church might work, um, and getting people more in touch with nature and the wild and the outdoors. She's done a lot of thinking about it. She's extremely well connected. You can see her website in the show notes. It's victorialores.com. You can also find her book there, Church of the Wild which I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast would be very interested in. It's just come out this year, brand new, beautiful book, tells her story, and then has a lot of resources in the back about how you would even do a church like this, how you find other churches in your area that are doing church in the wild. She started with a couple other people, a seminary, seminary of the wild. Um, It's really, really great. Uh, so I think people will very much enjoy this conversation. So uh, it's a good way to kick off November and the fall hunting season to be in conversation with somebody who's thought so much about this. And uh, Brandon, start prepping for that pheasant hunt. I- I'm prepping. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I'm going to start uh, <laughs> taking long nature walks now so I can get my legs in shape. <laughs> Good. And make sure I'm going to make sure to get some proper boots this time, too. (laughs) Yeah, that's boots. There's nothing more important when you're pheasant hunting than boots. That's what I've heard. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening to the Reverend Hunter podcast. As always, subscribe, like, review, rate, share, do all those good things. We love it. Um, If you have ideas like this listener did of potential guests, we'd love to hear that. 
Here's my conversation with Victoria Lures, author of Church of the Wild. Thanks, everybody. Hey, Victoria, thanks for coming on the Reverend Hunter podcast. Thank you for having me. Good to see you. It's crazy that we went to seminary together. It's crazy that I didn't remember that. (laughs) I won't take it personal. (laughs) Until you reminded me by email. Um, Yeah. Were you getting an MDiv at Fuller at the time? I was. Yep. Yeah, me too. What year did you graduate? Let's see. It was 90... 90? 90? I graduated in 93. I got there in the fall of 90, so maybe you were 91. I don't know about you. So 91. I think it was 91. What people always ask me is, did you overlap with Rob Bell? (laughs) (laughs) Don't think I did. (laughs) I don't think you did. I did. Because I think he arrived. I think we overlapped by one year, like 92, 93. And if I met him, I don't remember it. Actually, I just remembered. I graduated in 92. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Did you ever go to a party at the Brzee House? I did. <laughs> I was, in fact, it was at that party that I decided I was going to start a new business called Party Busters. And I would um, walk, people would hire me and I could walk into a room and be uncomfortable enough that everyone else would eventually feel uncomfortable and leave the room. <laughs> Quite a business, yeah. Because like, that the was your experience really at, at one of our parties. Was that was just my own my own discomfort. <laughs> that is, that's hilarious. Well, you told me before we started recording that you and your friends called the house I lived in the frat house. Indeed, which it was. It was five single guys. Um, it was totally the frat house. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say I partied more in seminary than I did in college. Because <laughs> in college, I was like trying to be the Christian kid, you know? Okay. And then you were re- trying to rebel from being the Christian kid. Correct. In seminary. <laughs> and you were the editor of the semi, the, the new newspaper. It's kind of a newsletter. Sort of a little student newspaper. And yeah. I know that there were at least a couple articles written about me. And I know that people posted stuff about me on the board of declaration. That I remember well. And I'm often reminded of it by... <laughs> People from my foot. Remember when that, that guy? That I don't remember. <laughs> it had to do with intramural football. Seminary intramural football is. Uh, oh, that's funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that was a long time ago that we were mm-hmm. uh, classmates at Fuller Seminary, um, and you've done a lot since then. And I'd love to hear the your journey that brought you to this, I mean, this is kind of a, not a culmination maybe, but a, a, I, I've written a few books and when you write a book, it is kind of a, it's a waypoint, you know, it's a snapshot in some ways because by the time the book is published, you've already gone on and done other things. Um, <laughs> but it's, it, it's a culmination of a chapter in your life and you have this book Church of the Wild, How Nature Invites Us into the Sacred, which I love. It's a beautiful book and just so well done and so desperately needed, I think, in the church world. And I think you and I, you know, share um, a a love, if maybe maybe a, a grudging love for the church and the people in the church and a, a <laughs> real desire that the church people in the church would get outside and do stuff outside. Yeah. So what t- tell me some snapshots of your journey from the the day you graduated with your masters of divinity <laughs> degree till till this book came out this year. Mm, well there's a there's a big question but I'll I'll try to be as succinct as possible. Right after graduating from seminary I went to work at World Vision. So World Vision's a evangelical relief and development organization. And um, the whole time, I was there a few years, but the whole time I was pregnant with my son, I worked on a project. Um, res- I was the, the uh, director of, um, what, are they, what do they call it? Research and policy development. So I'd research different social issues or global issues and come up with some kind of recommendation or white paper or, in this case, um, kind of a bigger, a bigger piece that was distributed to the church. 
around different global issues. And the first, and and this one that I wrote for this one year was, um, it ended up being called Let the Earth Be Glad. And it was kind of sent to, it was sent to 50,000 evangelical churches. And it was essentially a polemic saying, actually, caring for the rest of creation is not a liberal agenda. It's not, you know, it isn't something that uh, takes you away from caring about uh, people. And, um, and it was something that opened my eyes to ecological justice, essentially. Although it was very much back then a connection through sort of an anthropomorphic connection where it was about caring about people in all of these countries that, that World Vision put their efforts into through the lens of, you know, the, the ecological damage that's happening in these countries are affecting these human populations. Um, so that was kind of the first step for me. Okay. And um, I would say about after I left World Vision, I was a full-time mom for a while after I had my mm-hmm, son. Mm-hmm. And went into, by the time my son was 12, I was ready to sort of let go of all of my environmental books that I had sort of started to collect and be interested in when I was at World Vision. Just realizing, well, I guess that part of my life is over. It was like a dozen years later. And within, <laughs> within about a year, my 12-year-old son saw Inconvenient Truth. Mm. Al Gore's film about climate change or the climate crisis and he was blown away there was something about it that just transfixed him and he ended up watching the whole film all over again and going to school the next day to to uh, tell all of his classmates that they needed to uh, stop global warming uh-huh. <laughs> and he his best friend though was a was came from a family that watched Fox News and and he his friend told him you know Al Gore's a liar and climate change is a hoax. Hmm. And that pissed off my son, who came home and researched <laughs> everything he could that night. And he created his own little uh, uh, presentation, went to school the next day to prove his friend wrong. And that was the beginning of uh, a long journey for both of us. For within a few months, he was giving this presentation to other schools. And then he was giving this presentation to high schools. And then he was giving, you know, he was in middle school at a time. And um, within about, this is in seventh grade, he had an idea to put up these poles to show how much the sea level had risen along the beach where we lived in Ventura, California. And um, within that year, we realized this, this is really needed. There's not a youth voice in the climate movement. And so he started being invited you know we really didn't do anything but he started being invited to more and more conferences and we ended up starting a nonprofit called uh it's called i matter but before that it was called kids versus global warming that's what he called it and um so that that was our life i left uh working in i was working in a business you know context by then and we traveled all over the country and eventually all over the all over including Europe where he would sit on panels with scientists and politicians and wow. uh, political leaders and um, and then sort of what happened is we both got really burnt out <laughs> which wow. often happens in for activists yeah it also happens for pastors as uh, my transition into this was a burnout in within the church Hmm. Um, as a pastor, after I left World Vision, I was a pastor for a while, um, and then and then did this later. And th- but what I found in that place of burnout, in that place of sort of emptiness, is what was missing both in both of my worlds um, was a deep, intimate connection with the actual planet that we're working so hard to protect. Mm. or a deep, intimate connection with the particular beings that we are in relationship with living in any place as sacred. So it was once I started to question that and and investigate that, I, I was by then a pastor again, an associate pastor. And I started to be curious about, you know, is is there, are these really two separate things that 
if I, if I love the planet and I, do I need to really leave being a Christian? Hmm. And if I'm a Christian, do I really need to pretend that I'm not really invested in the environmental movement or the climate movement, which often it was, they were two different worlds. And the more I investigated it, the more I deepened into it, the more I found, no, these are falsely separated. And that false separation is actually really detrimental, not just to the natural world, but to our own spirituality and our own identity as human. So I guess then what I did then (laughs) is that's what led me into this um, church of the wild. So I I left the indoor church, which I now call it, and started a church that um, met outside of the village, you Mm -hmm. can say, out on the trails. I lived in Ojai, California then, out on the trails, out in along the dry riverbed under oak trees. Mm. And uh, we began meeting. I at first told people who... um, were saying, you need to do that church you've been talking about for two years that I would talk about in, in when I would preach in the indoor church. Uh, I would preach about things like, um, you know, that's really odd that all the leaders, all of them in the Old Testament and the New Testament were all called into wilderness at a pivotal time in their own leadership development and at a pivotal time in, in their history. And I would preach it as a as a pastor. I would preach it as sort of like, and you have your wilderness times, those times of, you know, darkness and difficulty. And but I started to think, you know, it's not just a metaphor. There's something actually happening in the wilderness there that has to do with the soil and the water and yeah. the relationship with with in nature. And so that questioning for a couple of years as I was an associate pastor led me to, when I left there, people saying, you know, you need to start that church you've been talking about. And I was like, I literally just made that up. Like, we can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and after we did start it, it was within a few months, I found all these other pastors that had thought they made it up, oh, which made me recognize okay. that this is some bigger story that we're all tapping into. That and that's when I started the Wild Church Network with the with the pastors that I started started to meet, um, and we just started meeting every month, and then we made a website, and then more and more people are joining it. Mm. And after doing that for a little while, then I started Seminary of the Wild, which is a deeper dive into this rewilding of our own souls, uh, a rewilded relationship with the natural world mm-hmm. and uh, rewilding our spirituality. Um, we have a, a, a module when they're called wild Christ. Like what is, what does that look like? If Christ isn't Jesus's last name, then what is that? And how have we tamed it through and domesticated Christ and God um, and our whole spiritual tradition over yeah. the last few thousand years? So that's Dang. what led me to write the book. That's a yeah. lot. <laughs> There's so many things that you just said that I want to talk about. <laughs> like I want to hear about what a church service is like, and I want to hear more about that seminary, and I want to hear how the different churches in the network do stuff. But the first thing I want to ask you about is prepositions. <laughs> and I want to know the difference between the church in the wild and the church of the wild, and mm-hmm. why, why being um s- s- deliberate with your prepositions is important to you and what you're doing. Mhm. Thank you. That's a good question. In fact, there's a whole chapter pretty much in the book about prepositions. Um there's a difference between church in the wild which is we are going to do everything we do about church only we'll do it outside because that's beautiful and restful and, and, um, you know, we can experience the presence of God. That's, that's a good thing. And I'm glad that, that churches do that. Um, but it's really church of the wild is uh, the difference is this is, this is really creating and, um, expressing spiritual practices that reconnect us with the natural world that reconnect us with the, the sacred that is that is embedded in the natural world, that is the natural world, that however you want to say it. Um, so it's really the, the natural world is the preacher, is a co-congregant, is uh, with us. I've, I've heard liturgies 
that are like, you know, we welcome in the the trees to worship God with us. Mm -hmm. There's something about that that I think is a little bit backwards. It's more like the trees are in a constant state of worship and we are invited into that, that state of worship with the trees. Mm. You know, it's sort of like, let the earth be glad that Psalm, like just let it be glad. Just leave it alone. Let the earth do what the earth does. Let the trees do that. Um, that being of themselves, which is a uh, a state of a state of worship, a state of reverence. I the last two years, or I, I left the church for seven years. Okay, and um, I left leading a church. I left going to church. I sort of in that burnout time, mm-hmm. and in that the last two years of that of those seven years that I was gone, all I read was this one Thomas Merton book of hours. And I'm a big reader, but this one book. I can tell in book, the book, yes. I just read it over and over, this one book. And it's, um, and in there was just these little prayers about, you know, this, this, this particular pony in this particular field is, is fully themselves, and that is an act of worship. Mm-hmm. And so that's what was really awakening to me. So these these little so that little difference between doing church in the wild and doing what we normally do, and doing church of the wild. That you are, we are of, you know, we are part of nature. Yeah, nature is not something out there. And so, how do we develop those spiritual practices that reconnect us? Because we've been so disconnected. It really does take a practice to to go back into actual relational uh, life in, in this web of interbeing as Thich Nhat Hanh talks about. Mm-hmm. In, in that chapter about the propositions, there's you know, all kinds of other propositions that make a difference to me. And one of them is Jesus went into the wilderness to pray. Jesus went into the lake to pray. Jesus went into the shoreline to pray. Every time that Jesus went to pray, first of all, every single time is in in the garden, at least. The garden, the wilderness, the mountain, the lake, the wilderness. So that's something to note. You know, you, you learn at church how to pray, but you don't so much learn at church how to go into the wilderness. Yeah. And so that was something that I noted, but it wasn't just they went in the wilderness, which is a locational word. Mm-hmm. In is like in a place. But the word ice into, it's always, the word is always, except for one time, into. And so into is a relational word. It's a relationship, a, a kindred relationship that, that Jesus would go to do this action of prayer. So it was so these these prepositions are these little tiny words that we can overlook but as you look more deeply to me it made the stories make more sense and it helped me to uncover some of the centuries of um patriarchal kind of separation from the rest patriarchal and colonial kind of like separation empire separation from from place because that's what empire needs to do is is separate people from from place from a sacred relationship with the with their land and the waters so it, even these tiny little words make a difference <laughs> i love that i did love that chapter and i did uh, I did think, oh, these poor seminary kids now, because they're no longer like you and I were forced to learn Greek and Hebrew. And <laughs> now you can go to seminary without learning that. And just how much you brought to that, even those, you know, the Greek prepositions, I think uh, that it was really fascinating. Do you remember maybe a couple years ago, I think it was Union Seminary in, in New York City, where people brought plants into chapel and the people of the seminary students apologized and they were crying and saying they were sorry to the plants. Mm. Um, they got a lot of grief for that and people made a lot of fun. It, it, I just wonder what you think. Cause I mean, you see something like that and of course it's in the news, so it's skewed and it's, you know, of course not what they were really getting after, but it, it can be so easy to skewer and, and, and um, 
make fun of something like that, which I'm sure was done with the best of intentions. But to me, it seems like the opposite of what you're saying. It's like bringing nature in, which of course a house plant is, uh, I guess, in some little bit bitty way nature, is so different than going out to the outdoors and submitting ourselves to the wild. Because domestic plants are not wild. And like you... I, w- I went through a hard time in my life and left the church. And I, where I went was I went into the wild. I went outdoors um, and found a great deal of comfort and solace and, and transcendence, to be quite honest, outdoors. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I loved was when you get out there, uh, s- shit is not orderly mm-hmm. in the real wild. You know, it's not orderly. On my house, I look around, everything's at right angles and, you know, <laughs> uh, man, there's nothing at right angle outside. It's, it's like, it's, it's chaotic and wild. That's a, the perfect word for it. That's a word I use all the time and you obviously do too. So yeah, what, what's your, what, what are your reflections on why we struggle so much at that? At connecting with wild yeah, or getting out the in the wild. Here? It's easier to bring a house plant into you know, Mm. into the chapel and apologize to it than it is to like get your ass outside and (laughs) submit yourself to some chaotic wild. Yeah, I think maybe just just leaning into what Union was doing is creating a a ritual and a and a representation of something that has that humans have done to to disrespect the inherently sacred nature of nature. <laughs> and so I, I, I get how, how easy it is to make fun of that, but I also get how that can be, you know, a representation just as, just as baptism, you know, bringing a little bit of water and, and tapping it onto your head versus being immersed in a river. Um, and, and that, and that action of immersion in a river, even as a sacramental, activity as a sacramental moment um, makes a difference because again the the word used in baptizing when Jesus was baptized was into the river into relationship not just with the other people who are sitting in the in the pews but into deep relationship with the whole place with the whole earth you know through that particular place and so um, I think there are people who don't have access to, nature as we're talking about to the wildness of of the natural world and yet we are again part of nature so even a relationship with a with a spider who's rock, walking across your table could be a an act of reconnection but there is something that happens that you can feel when you, like you're describing when you are able to you are privileged to spend time in immersed in the natural world something happens you can feel it the difference between your first day out there and your fourth day out there that you can deepen into relationship with that place Mm. you can feel those those um those questions those distractions in your mind kind of slowly slowly releasing those so that you can start to hear the actual birds and you can hear the wind and you can connect with the actual other beings in this place. And then as you continue to be out in that, in this intentional relationship, and that's different than like climbing a mountain or, you know, um, that, that can also have that intentionality, but there's something about slowing down and really just listening and allowing relationship to happen that, that does welcome and invite you to hear sort of the voice of the sacred yeah. that's not a separate voice, <laughs> that, is a, that is the voice of the leaves in relationship with the wind, that's the voice of the, of the stones and the water is becomes becomes you you are able to have a sort of like ears to hear and mm-hmm. eyes to see but it takes some you know commitment to to listen so i think that is that is something that's that's different and and i, I like your point of it's not orderly and we don't we don't like we don't we don't like to not be in control 
<laughs> as humans. And so humans tend to want to put things into boxes, uh, our gardens in rows, our, uh, our churches inside buildings, <laughs> our yeah. theology in boxes, our God into, uh, you know, something containable and definable. Um, and there is a risk and you lose something when you lose the wildness and you want, insist on that, that orderliness. And so it is, it is a process of um, walking into the chaos, walking into the darkness, accepting death, accepting um, this interconnected, very connected, in, very interconnected. So it feels like disorderly, but it's also very connected and very much of a system. Wild systems mm -hmm. are very in, interconnected, mm -hmm. um, okay. but not orderly. <laughs> yeah. Not and that's, that's uncomfortable for us. So I think for that's sure. part of the gift of the wilderness yep. is to remember that we aren't in control, to sort of like decenter de the human in our uh, theology, in our politics, in our way of, of our relationship with the, with the sky, with the air, with, not, with uh, fossil fuels, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. It all is about a disconnected relationship and how do we reconnect it? Like one thing I love saying that I've heard from others, so I didn't make it up, but the word uh, religion, if you look at the etymology of that word, is religios, which is like a ligament. So it's just, it's, it's reconnection. Ligaments connect bones. And so humans have always had religion in their, in their culture. There must be something about humans that tend to disconnect, that we need to develop rituals and ceremonies and spiritual practices to stay connected, to reconnect, not even stay, but to constantly reconnect. And I think the natural, to, to disconnect from the natural world, like there's, there's consequences to not just the world, obviously, as we see in our um, state of ecological crises on Apocalypse. every level. Yeah. Yes, uh, but also there's a huge consequence to our um, our own personal spirituality, and to our institutions and to our churches. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I mean, just a just a little anecdote, even from my last weekend of I was driving home from being up in northern Minnesota, and I was grouse hunting with my dog. And my son said, hey, something's wrong with Crosby. That's the name of our dog. And all of a sudden, his face was just completely swollen. Like he was having a massive mm. allergic reaction to something. One of his eyes swelled shut, and then he started throwing mm. up in the backseat of my truck. And, you know, we got him home and got him some Benadryl, and he, he was okay. And I had to clean up the puke out of the back of my truck. But one of the things I was thinking was, because my son was like, well, how, what, what did he eat? And my mom was like, well, what did he eat? We got to find out, like, what it was he ate or rubbed up against and i said i will never know like it's crazy out there if you're going to take a, the risk of being out in thick mm -hmm. cover hunting grouse like all day long i've i've had stuff go wrong with me and go wrong with dogs and it's not predictable out there and it's not we we have we have stripped risk out of mm -hmm. modern life yeah. Um, and I so desperately want, I mean, this is pretty minor risk. I'm going hunting, but there's risk involved, you know, and I want that. Uh, and I think we need it. Um, well, I wonder, I'd love to hear about your church of the wild and like to let, let the listeners of this podcast like bring us inside a, a, a church quote unquote service. But I'm also interested as you narrate that from the time you started, the first one you did, what did you learn along the way? Like what have you gotten better at? Because the more you did it, I'm sure you learned a great deal about what works and what doesn't and how to do a church of the wild. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'd also like to comment on what you were oh, just yeah. talking about that. Yeah that risk um, 
what we have lost with this false sense of security. It's like this weird false privilege that, that, you know, how dare we be at risk? How dare we ever be at the prey? How dare, you know, mosquitoes exist? <laughs> um, or, a, or a COVID virus or a, or a mean, COVID virus. How <laughs> dare you? Yeah. Like, like, like we are, have this false sense of security as yes. if being in this house means we're never cold, you know? So I think there's something just even in that that's important in the, the church of the wild, um, no matter how you, how you structure your service, there's something about just being outside, even when it's cold, there's a whole bunch of churches that are in, you know, upper, upper regions of Canada that meet all winter long that right? in the middle of very cold, very cold winters. There's something about just being outside yeah. and uncomfortable, you know, because we've decided that we can protect ourselves from any kind of, not just insecurity, but discomfort. When, when, I, and there, when I take people to the boundary waters, like I did with my doctor of ministry students this last summer, the one thing, I mean, I give them all sorts of advice or whatever, but I, the one thing I say there is like, if there, what, what's the one thing I need to know about canoeing in the boundary waters for a week? I'm like, here's what you need to know. You will be uncomfortable the entire time. It'll be cold, too cold, too hot, sunburned, bug bitten. Your feet will be wet. You'll ne- your feet will never get dry. You know, and your muscles will be sore and your sleeping bag will be on a rock. And the food will be mm-hmm. undercooked or overcooked. Like, there's nothing comfortable about it. Yes. Most, I love that. But most people are like, oh, gosh. Because right. we, it we takes a long time to undo that. Around, yeah. comfort, around comfort. Right. 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 So there's, there's something to that. So um, remind me about the gnats in, okay. in this story if I, if I forget about it. Um, so, so a typical... Church of the Wild experience the way that I do it, which is weird because I thought I was making it up. And then all these other pastors across North America have almost exactly the same kind of um, service, which was surprising to me. There are some that have a service that is a, that is much that can be compared to a church in the wild, where they they are outside. They bring in pews. There's seventy people. Um, they have an altar that's maybe, um, a, you know, a stump rather than something built. And but they but they do take that next step of of integrating the more than human others into the liturgies, or maybe they have a time of contemplation where they walk around um, and then come back. But but there's a whole bunch of wild churches that are, that structure their service similar to the way that I do. And essentially what I call, I call it a conversation, which is a whole other thing that we probably don't even have time to go into, but there's a chapter in the book about the word conversation that is intriguing to me. But the conversation kind of begins with an invitation where we gather together, we sit in a circle in a, in a particular place. Generally we'll gather together. There might be, um, a poem or a story. Um, usually it's not all people who identify as or relate to Christianity. It's usually a mix of people. And where, where our common ground is, is the common ground. And so there's not a lot of need for people to have the same doctrine. There's no real uh, theology that we're going to be discussing here. Uh, we'll have prayers. Sometimes the prayers are from you know, 1500 years ago, because there's always been this wild edge, even in the Western church that has stayed connected to the natural world or Celtic or other, other strands of, of Christianity that didn't disconnect from the natural world. So we'll bring in some of these ancient, ancient prayers, that kind of thing. And then it will, uh, it will lead to within the first 20 minutes to what I call a, um, an invitation, an invitation to saunter uh, or to wander. And it, I might invite people to wander around, uh, leave the circle and wander in this, in this area where you feel drawn. And when you feel drawn to a particular place or maybe a particular being, maybe there's a, a snake or a grasshopper that draws your attention, just I say there's one rule and the rule is don't 
don't second guess yourself. Mm. <laughs> Allow yourself to be drawn to something. And it's probably different than what you left the circle thinking, I'm going to go to that bridge or something like that. It's as you're on your way to the bridge, if you slow down and really listen and look and be aware of the others, the other beings around you, you'll probably be drawn someplace else that you didn't expect. And then take some time just to be there and to um, listen, to center yourself, to even enter into a conversation with this other, which begins with something like a, uh, what our indigenous brothers and sisters would tell us, um, we need to, to enter into relationship with these others, whether it's a creek or a tree or a deer, uh, with respect, with reverence. And that begins with some kind of permission asking. And that doesn't mean you have to say it out loud, but just sort of internally, like, is this a, is this a place? You know, do you, you sense it? Do you feel welcome? And sometimes you don't. And you're like, all right, I'll keep going. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you do. And entering into just kind of like being there and seeing what comes up. Maybe you're, maybe there's a, a invitation about, you know, one of them is around Mary Oliver's poem, Tell Me About Despair, Yours, and I'll Tell You Mine. And so just kind of listening and going, what is it? What is, and using your imagination, opening up your imagination, which is another invitation that's part of being human, that we tend to devalue and say, oh, gosh, that's just in your imagination that that tree talked to you or something like that. Yeah. When instead, it's like, imagine, yes, that was in your imagination that, it, you know, what is any encounter with God? <laughs> Where does that actually live? Um, and so revaluing that that human gift of imagination and and a lot of people will write poems or they'll um, have a memory of something and journal about it or or just they'll find that they're sitting in a place and it's just really beautiful you know there's no real um, expectation to have some quote spiritual experience but people often do and then they'll come back after 45 minutes to an hour which right there is a gift because even if you're out um, hiking or spending time in nature, going hunting. There's usually something else that you're paying attention to, but this is really held space that for one hour, <laughs> all you're doing is going and listening and being uh, in intentional relationship. And then you come back and it's the third part of, so this, the first part of conversation is this invitation. The second part is having some kind of interaction, conversation with, with the natural world. And the third part is the conversation with one another. And so that's kind of decentering the professional Christian, the pastor, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is another thing that bugged me when I was a pastor in a church is just that, you know, all of the, the pressure on the pastor to be the one through whom all of the insight comes and all of the, you know, I call it the professional Christian. There's just something kind of weird about that and just weird that you know one person get, gets used to telling everybody else their experiences and their stories but not it's not a conversation it's not doesn't go both ways so this third part is sharing with one another what you experienced the poem you wrote um you know and it's kind of like when you have a dream and you think oh that was just an anxiety dream but when you start sharing it with somebody and you get curiosity back from them and they ask you like well How'd you feel when that bear came and threw you into the ocean or whatever the dream was? <laughs> yeah. Um, it starts to open up for you. So it's kind of the same thing when you, when you have this little experience in an hour and you share it, that other people reflecting it back to you or just, just the fact of wit having it be witnessed mm -hmm. opens it up to you that, that, that it is a channel of, of connection with the sacred. That's essentially the <laughs> the whole service. You know, sometimes we'll have a, a communion. Sometimes we'll end with a, you know, a song or something. But mm -hmm. um, the core of it is this learning to listen. Um, yeah. And I say often it's we meet to, you know, something that's a longing of mine to experience God and not just talk about God. And so it's really an invitation into, into that. Wow, that's incredible. Uh People must have very profound experiences just because you're forcing them to slow down, to listen, to attend to the wild around them. What's really fascinating, too, is that the children totally get it. 
Uh, so you don't need a separate children's ministry. <laughs> the yeah. kids just, uh, you know, sort of like climb the trees and the rocks, but they're always listening. That you'd think they'd want to go off on their own, but they're like listening. They uh, get it. That's like, whoa, something of my language is being spoken here. Yeah. And they're often the ones that are the first to share, which That's is fascinating. Cool. Yeah. Like just Saturday, I was at a, I led a little wild church service here in Bellingham and um, a little girl, first time to a wild church, first, you know, had been, been to churches before and sent to the children's room, you know, yeah. to play or whatever. But she got it in the wandering time. I watched her as she wandered from tree to tree and hugged them and was kissing the bushes. Ah. And how old is she? She's maybe five. And she came back and somebody had mentioned giving a gift to a giving a gift giving kind of situation. And she spoke up second. And she said, the tree gave me a gift. And she brought it out and she was just, she knew. And she's talking about how after she was hugging the trees, the, the tree gave her a gift of this pine cone. And she was cherishing it. Like she wrapped it up in her blanket. and Like they get it. We, we start out as human. This isn't anything new. This isn't like new practices. This is restoring, reconnecting with something that I think humans have always been um, have the capacity for we've just forgotten so i i always say that this is a, a practice of remembering remembering ourselves back into the whole <laughs> that's that's awesome and then how do you what's the difference between that and the, the seminary idea that you've launched yeah the seminary of the wild is um right now we have our main um, what do we call it, program, I guess, is a year-long eco-ministry. We call it the eco-ministry certificate. And it's, it takes people in through, it's, it's, it's a group of like-hearted people who many of them, have, you know, in this one cohort we have now, half of them are pastors. In another cohort we had three or four of the 20 to 25, 30 people were even Christian. Wow. <laughs> so it, it's um, it's just interesting who's drawn to it, but we have a um, in this year long we we've kind of broken it down to four different modules for four directions I guess four different alternative ways of of knowing um, they're called wild earth and that's the first one is just reconnecting with the natural world as sacred and what is that what is that like um, who who are these others in your particular home place and um and then the second one and, and really that part and this is kind of this comes out in my book a lot, a lot it's it's it is the naturalist it's finding out who what are these trees what are these what animals live there mm -hmm. but it's really the that next level that robin wall kimmer talks about that um we often can say oh i love i love these trees i love my garden i love the earth i love you know mountain lions um, but then she asked them, you know, but, but do you know that they love you back? You know? How yeah. Do, that do was a know? fascinating part of your book because you wrote it very, um, well, the whole book is first person, but that part, you're really kind of open, like your internal dialogue of like, mm. why is it so hard for me to believe that that deer, that black tailed deer loves me back? What's. Like, what is that blockage in me that keeps, it keeps me, I thought that was totally. fascinating. Yeah. Like we can, we can believe that our dog loves us right? because we're in relationship with our dog, but how can we believe that, you know, and it's kind of weird if you think about it, like really, we believe this is an unrequited love <laughs> that we love the earth. We love our garden, but, but it's unrequited. It's like, that, why yeah. is that okay? Um, so anyway, that's the first part of summer as well, because it's foundational. It's yeah. something that. Once we are able to be in reconnect in in this kindred relationship, then we can open up to this next part we called wild self. And a lot of that is, um, you know, there's a lot of people that talk about um, internal family systems or these different parts of ourselves. But we depend a lot on uh, Bill Plotkin's work. He's a developmental psychologist who's whose models of the psyche are integrated with our relationship with the natural world and. So, you know, once you have this, this relationship, then you can go deeper and see, yeah. 
and explore those parts of yourself that are, you know, blocked off, like, like you just pointed out. <laughs> um, and, and as we sort of get to that place, which, which we call our wild, you know, we, we untame those parts of ourselves that have not been accepted, you know, that have not been acceptable, at least to us, if not to our family, our church, our culture. Um, and so it really is a bunch of that. It's a lot of that unfolding. And so doing that in a supportive, you know, a safe but uncomfortable <laughs> environment, uh, a community that is, that, is, that is connecting on that deeper level, even the word connecting on Zoom, because these are people from all over North America and even some people from Europe. Um, and the next, the next module is Wild Christ. And so that's not saying, hey, here's a new way to think of Jesus, you know. It's not saying here, here, we can't here. Everybody become Christian now because we can do this wildly. And it's also not saying, um, you know, you need to leave Christianity because it's too domesticated. It's not saying any of that, although all of that happens. Sure. <laughs> um, it's saying, you know, now that you've done some, some more rewilding work within your own psyche and, and remembered yourself within your own place in a deeper way, and there's always deeper work to do. Um, now let's look at your spirituality. Now let's look at um, what does what does Christ, as Richard Rohr says, not the last name of Jesus, but Christ in the bigger sense of that that divine um, presence that is in all things. Um, how, mm -hmm. how can we have a more wild relationship within that? With uh, a more wild relationship with the divine, with the sacred, with God, and whether you're you know, Christian or not, it almost, um, almost doesn't matter. You know, we do, we do use the Christian stories more than we do. We don't try to be interspiritual because that's our background. So that feels a bit like appropriation. We will use other stories, but, um, you know, our background is, is the Christian story. So, um, then the last piece is wild call. Because it, that's kind of like connecting this with the collective human community. And what are we called to at this particular moment, at this threshold of, of deep collapse? And, um, and you can see on the edges and, and a little more, more, little more and a little more every year that what is being called into is a more compassionate, a more connected way of being human and being a civilization and so what is your particular role in that you know you know as joanna macy says the great turning or as thomas berry said the um i'm blanking on what he said but it's it's the it's it's the new way of being the new story and so um it's different than it was 10 five years ago two years ago because we're at this moment a really important transformational moment in our culture and a really uh, dangerous and scary part in our on our planet that calls to all of us to step in in a new way. So there's there's support in that, and not just like you know. So go do it. Good luck. <laughs> we stay with one another even after the programs are over. Well, that's so cool. How, tell me, how, how would somebody find first of all if there's a wild church? in their area? Yeah, there's a, a website called wildchurchnetwork.com. And we're building a, a community around that. There's a map on there. There are, I don't know, maybe there's less than 100 churches on the map, but we've got about a thousand other people that are starting to build churches. And um, so there's, there's ways to connect with people through through Wild Church Network to see if there's a church near you. And there's a big encouragement for people that aren't pastors to start a wild church because okay. it does not take a theology degree to to lead this. It takes a heart um, that's open. Yeah. And we don't even train people how to do it. We tell stories and say, this is how this, is how this church does it. Mm -hmm. This is how that one does it because there's not one way. It, your, your, your particular gifts, your particular community – and your particular place will require and and request a way of doing wild church in your community. But there are support systems and resources and things like that there. And then Seminary of the Wild is the same, seminaryofthewild.com. Okay. 
And then uh, my book, uh, you can find all of those actually, just my name, victorialures.com, has a bunch of links to these different yeah. organizations yeah. and communities. That's great. Well, I love what you're doing. And uh, I think it's really the perfect moment for it, you know, uh, with, with both the kind of, as we watch the decline in, at least in the West, of traditional indoor church, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, inside <laughs> church. Um, and it's, you know, it, 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 it's a time, I think, when a lot of people realize the crisis we're in and want to be out, you know, be reconnected to this world that we've taken such bad care of. Mm-hmm. And the church, of course, the Christian church is implicated in that bad care, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Some bad theology yeah. has led to that. Not not across the board, um, but in pockets for sure. So we've got some work to do. And maybe I won't ask for forgiveness from a house plant, but I may ask for forgiveness from the wild plant, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the wild creation. Um, well, thanks so much. And I hope that people, you know, look up your stuff and find you online. And, and this maybe piques some people's curiosity. And I really hope people buy your book because I think they'll find it super helpful and, and engaging. If they like this podcast, I, I'm confident they'll appreciate your book as well. Mm, well, thank you so much. It was great to reconnect. And yeah, we could sit here and talk all night around a campfire. <laughs> So I, yeah. I appreciate the opportunity and, and your interest and all the work that you're doing. Oh, you bet. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming on. 